Hello, everybody. I'm Jason Mikula, and welcome back to Fintech Business Podcast, where I interview leaders from across fintech, banking, and crypto. If you don't already subscribe, you can get this podcast automatically in your inbox. Just sign up at fintechbusinessweekly.com. In this episode, I talk to Supes Ranjan, co-founder and CEO at Sardine, a fraud prevention and compliance infrastructure startup. We had a chance to talk about how technology can enable faster, safer money movement, Sardine's unique approach of taking on the fraud risk of its customers, the trade-offs in reducing friction in financial apps, and more. Welcome back to FinTech Business Podcast. Money movement is a key part of many types of businesses, not just FinTech businesses. Uh, This is particularly true of an entire host of digitally enabled services consumers have come to rely on, things like Uber, DoorDash, Airbnb, not to mention applications like Cash App, Venmo, Robinhood, a plethora of buy now, pay later companies. Um, So today, uh, I'm happy to announce we're joined by Subs Ranjan, co-founder and CEO at Sardine to discuss how Sardine enables faster money movement while facilitating regulatory compliance and fraud screening. Uh, Supes, thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us some context uh, by giving a bit of an overview of the capabilities and use cases of Sardine? Yeah, Jason, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so Sardine, just like the fish, it's uh, fast. It's all about confidently loading money uh, as quickly as possible into a digital wallet. And when we say digital wallet, we mean um, either a neobank wallet, such as a Chime or a Brex, or it could also be a crypto slash NFT wallet. And the confidence piece comes from us taking on uh, both the fraud risk as well as taking care of all the compliance risks. Uh, such as KYC and AML risks. And um, yeah, uh, the, the the reason we started Sardine is because, you know, as, as you pointed out, it's actually, um, uh, we live in this age where we could hail an Uber within a couple of seconds. But uh, if you think about the, the FinTech Neobank app, especially in the US today, you know, it takes maybe uh, a minute or so to do KYC and you know be onboarded into the FinTech app. But then when you want to load money into the wallet, uh, you're stuck waiting because of the rudimentary system such as ACH, right? So you, it takes on average a couple of days before your money can actually become available. So therefore all the you know uh, efforts that the FinTech entrepreneur invested in making the onboarding be seamless and smooth, et cetera, et cetera, it just, go, just goes out of the window because yeah, uh, the, the, the customer cannot even begin to use the FinTech app. And we are here to essentially change that by enabling money movement seamlessly and fast without uh, without the fintech uh, entrepreneur or the fintech app having to take on any of the fraud risks themselves. It's really interesting. I mean, I you know I live in Europe now and uh, have come to rely on and be very accustomed to either instant or very near instant payments that are, you know, cheap or essentially free. And, and you're, you just remind me that, you know, that is, that is still not the case in the U S you know, as much as advancement has there, as there have been um, in, you know, FinTech apps and particularly in the UX, there's still this underlying infrastructure, which in some cases, you know, kind of is sort of the weakest link, right? You can, open a new bank account in, you know, one minute, two minutes. But to your point, if you're moving money in via ACH, you know, that 
company may want to wait as many as four business days to make sure that those funds have cleared and settled before they allow you to begin spending them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's interesting to think about, you know, friction and opportunities to reduce friction and, and you know, whether it's Uber uh, or a trading app or crypto, this is a key uh, vector of improving conversion rate. Uh, and as somebody who spent, you know, many millions of dollars over multiple years uh, in marketing campaigns, you know, it's not just, can I get this person to open an account? It's, are they funding it? Are they using it? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really interesting. Can you talk about some of the trade-offs in reducing friction? So, I mean, when I think of reducing friction, that feels like it probably comes with more risk, right? Am I, you know, skipping some steps or doing something less thoroughly to enable this customer to onboard more quickly. Mm-hmm. How does Sardine help facilitate reducing friction while also mitigating these different kinds of risk? In fact, in fact before, before I answer that question, I want to just uh, take a slight tangent over here, right? And the tangent I want to take is that uh, a lot of uh, fintechs, they think that, especially when they're launching, they, they think that uh, not asking a consumer too many questions upfront during onboarding as in actually eliminating onboarding friction is gonna uh, be great for the business. But it oftentimes turns out that if you don't ask the right questions at the right time, you're inviting uh, or you, you're inviting for a much higher fraud rate than you would have actually had. For example, um, you know a lot of um, uh, a lot of crypto apps out there, they may postpone asking a consumer to provide for SSN up to a certain dollar value. Or in the UK, for example, uh, you could actually transact up to $250 without having to again do KYC, right? But then in that regards, right? Because you didn't really ask for KYC information, you are now op- extending an invitation or an open invitation to fraudsters who can also get away uh, with up to $250 of fraud in the UK, or let's say up to 2K, or uh, whatever that limit is in the US, uh, depending on the jurisdiction, uh, for a consumer to open an app and transact without having gone through a properly uh, performed KYC, right? So in, in, in a lot of ways, what I'm getting at is that uh, sometimes FinTech entrepreneurs or crypto entrepreneurs think wrongly so that, you know, uh, uh, if they have this short-term gain, uh, they'll be fine, but actually they're signing up for much long-term pain. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when, um, you know, my identity was actually stolen last year, uh, I wrote a probably tediously long piece about it. Um, and, and thankfully, there wasn't any, you know, major damage. But um, one thing I noticed is that, you know, my identity information was used to open up uh, accounts at multiple sort of fintech neobank type products. And it seemed that you know, perhaps some of these companies were targeted because either they had or they were perceived to have less strict, less friction-filled processes in place versus you know, a traditional regional bank or money center bank. I mean, have you, you know, is this something you've seen in, you know, in the industry, either in your experience or, or you know, in clients that you've worked with? Yeah, we see this all the time, and and in fact, uh, the to answer your uh, original question as well, going back to it, right? Uh, one of the other converse things that we see, or the counterintuitive things that we see, is uh, 
Uh, and it's it's particularly true for a lot of European or UK-based fintech apps or crypto exchanges when they're entering the US market, because in the UK, 3D secure is very prevalent, right? And you know, most of the consumers are enrolled in some sort of 2FA with their banks. And that's why when you do 3DS in the UK or Europe, you know, uh, consumers, they, they're, they're, they're actually very much used to uh, uh, engaging with the, two, the second factor. Whereas all these new bank apps, when they move to the US, they actually think that they can also and, uh, get away with imposing 3DS for solving their fraud problem. So in, in this case, they're doing the converse. They are saying that, hey, I'm going to throw as much friction as possible on a, on a, on a consumer so that when the consumer is using their uh, uh, card issued by a Chase or a Wells Fargo to load money into my new bank, I'm just going to you know, use 3DS and therefore I'll pass on the liability onto uh, the, the, the brick and mortar bank, the Chases and the Wells Fargo's of the world. However, it turns out most of the consumers in the US are not enrolled in 3DS. And secondly, uh, what happens is that when you actually do the liability shift to the Chases and the Wells Fargo's and the Bank of America's of the world, they are actually, uh, their fraud algorithms, they kick in. And therefore, they are actually more likely to decline your transaction. So a simple act of a money load event into a new bank using even a card sometimes has really, really poor conversion rates. In fact, most of the, uh, <clears throat> most of the crypto exchanges in the US, they have really poor conversion rates when you're buying crypto using a card because they have tuned the issuing banks into you know, uh, a liability shift via 3DS, right? So where Sardine comes in is we, we think that, you know, uh, if you don't have a fraud problem, you have a growth problem, and therefore you gotta actually uh, treat the same problem you know, uh, of, of fraud versus friction, depending on where the, the the merchant is, like maybe they're all the way on the fraud side, maybe they're all the way on the friction side, right? So we try to balance the two. So sometimes we may say, hey, let Sardine be your 3DS orchestrator. So without actually requiring a 3DS, Sardine is essentially gonna take on the fraud risk and decide whether you know this is a low, medium or high risk consumer based on our algorithms and if we think it's a high-risk consumer, only then would we say, let's actually require 3DS. So that is one of the ways we have which we balance the fraud and friction trade-offs. Yeah. Question for listeners who might not be familiar, can you explain what th what 3DS is? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I, I should have begun with that. So <laughs> 3DS stands uh, uh, for 3D Secure. It's essentially, uh, let's take an example of uh, uh, a particular... Uh, bank, let's say Chase, if Chase has issued uh, a card to you, and if you have signed into Chase's 3DS program, now, if you are transacting um, on a website where you're using your Chase card, let's say to purchase uh, an air ticket, and Chase's algorithms think that uh, this is uh, not really you doing this purchase, then they may send uh, a, you know, a message via 3DS to you, Typically, it would be a push notification to your phone, or it could be, you know, uh, uh, in some cases, it could even be delivered via an email or an SMS asking you, hey, did you authorize this transaction? So this Got is it. one way of fighting for fraud, yeah. One other thread I want to make sure is, is clear. From how you've described Sardine, it sounds like you're actually taking on the fraud risk from your clients. So it's not simply that you're 
a vendor providing, you know, some sort of analytics or data, but you're actually uh, in the event that fraud does occur, taking on the financial liability. Is is that right? Yeah, that's correct as well. Uh, so yeah, so in um, in a lot of cases, uh, we take on the 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 fraud risk whenever money is being loaded into the wallet, either via cards or via ACH rails. Got it. Um, shifting gears a little bit, we talked some about you know Zelle, Cash App, Venmo, mm -hmm. uh, as well as crypto. You know there have been uh, a number of stories you know over the course of the pandemic and a push more recently from the CFPB around some of the fraud uh, tied to these instant payment services uh, in the sense that you know consumers you know may be uh, unaware that the transactions are in in most all yeah. cases irreversible um, and you know uh, some of these fraud vectors are sort of tricking users into authorizing, uh, transactions uh, through such schemes as so-called me-to-me transfers, where the fraudster will link the user's own phone number to a distinct separate bank account that they control. I mean, what you know, what is your sort of view on some of the evolving risks in these different payment mechanisms? You know, what responsibility do platform operators have to protect users? You know, is this an area where some of the technology solutions that, that you're building potentially could be applied to, to you know, help protect consumers? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, the thing about all these faster payment methods, right? Uh, like in the UK, you have faster payments or the US with Zelle and then in future with uh, RTP and FedNow is that when you can actually move money fast, you can also lose money very fast uh, to fraud, right? And uh, what we are seeing hap as happening with Zelle scams in the US, uh, we, we don't really need to look very far. We need to just look across the pond to the UK and take some lessons from how they went about solving for what they call authorized push payment fraud, APP mm -hmm. fraud. Uh, APP fraud is really just a, a, a fancy name for saying it's essentially uh, a push payment fraud. And the way this fraud is perpetrated in the in the UK, uh, as well as in the, in the US, is uh, typically uh, someone will socially engineer you into thinking that they, um, uh, that they are sending money uh, to buy something where you won't ever deliver the goods. Or the other flavor that we see is uh, what we call elder abuse or romance scams, right? Uh, so the romance scam is the the, the typical, you know, uh, overseas romantic interest that you're engaging in, except this romantic interest always needs some money. So they are now convincing you to send money via faster payments or Zelle, et cetera. And then the third flavor, which is the elder abuse is essentially, uh, uh, yeah, an unsuspecting victim uh, gets contacted by someone who pretends to be uh, uh, from either the IRS or a crypto exchange or a stock brokerage saying, hey, I'm going to actually double your money in, in the latter case or in the former case, hey, you owe us money, right? And then they're going to give you a particular uh, phone number to send the money. Or in some extreme cases, they, they also actually uh, convince you to install uh, or to open an account at a fintech app or at the crypto exchange mm -hmm. while guiding you over TeamViewer, Citrix, AnyDesk, any of these 
remote screen sharing tools because they'll take over your screen, guide you through the process, et cetera, et cetera, right? So yeah, so essentially what, where I'm getting at with it is that uh, these uh, these sorts of scams are growing rapidly. Uh, just the FTC the other day came out with this article saying that in particular in crypto, uh, crypto fraud since January 2021 has been, uh, has exceeded a billion dollars now. Mm-hmm. And a big chunk of this crypto fraud is still the social engineering flavor, right? Mm. And, 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 uh, 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 Zell has similar issues, et cetera. And now, uh, you know, contrary to what people think that when Fed now launches, you know, all the issues with fraud will go away, I think it's going to be the converse. It's going to actually increase even further because now fraudsters have means of taking money away from the victim without any recourse for the victim. And there is a lot of uh, work still remaining to be done. In the UK, the, the uh, payment systems regulator, which is the FCA, they uh, took note of this problem a couple of years ago, and they've established what you call uh, uh, confirmation of payee. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, it's a it's a system of you know essentially establishing liability between the sending bank and the receiving bank. If the sending bank or the sending app has not verified that the money is going to who it is really intended to via this confirmation of payee system, then the liability actually lies with the sending bank. Otherwise, it can shift to the bank that actually received the stolen funds, right? And then secondly, what they have done is they have now also set up uh, a pool of money aside where you know, several, uh, I believe nine banks have volunteered in the UK uh, in order to participate in this sort of a, a, a liability shift and who gets reimbursed or not. If, if, if blame cannot be assigned or liability cannot be assigned between two of the banks, then the, the, the liability or the consumer gets uh, the funds back from this pot of money that has been set mm. aside. Interesting. I mean, the, I should point out that that you know these kinds of scams are not you know in and of themselves new. I mean, dating back to you know when I first started working in financial services and and, and banking, you know, the use of uh, green dot money pack in the U.S. was like a major vector of fraud. So I mean, there's a tendency for fraudsters to, you know, probe and detect weaknesses in sort of whatever the, you know, latest systems, latest applications are and uh, ruthlessly exploit those until, you know, until there's some sort of mitigation measures, you know, and or education put in place to help reduce the risk to consumers. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and there's still a lot remaining to be done. Uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that yeah, uh, the banks and you know, fintechs, we can all come together and you know, set a good precedent such mm-hmm. that you know, even an FTP, sorry, RTP and Fed now they take off, you know, uh, consumers are not put in increasing harm's way. Right? So that, that's actually a great segue. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, faster payments have definitely taken hold in the UK, Europe, the US is lacking behind um, with RTP, uh, and Fed now on the horizon. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the instant ACH funding service uh, that you're able to facilitate now? And then how do you sort of envision, you know, that evolving as some of these other payment systems come online? 
Absolutely. So yeah, may, uh, I'll first explain what we do with Insane ACH and then answer the question on, on how uh, yeah, future-proofing our product. So uh, first and foremost, yeah, what we've done is that because uh, ACH has this uh, several days worth of delay, depending on whether you're doing same day ACH or next day. Uh, uh, so what we've done is we've we've essentially rolled out a product where we front the money to the fintech or the crypto exchange so that they can in turn pass the money instantly to the consumer. So the consumer can actually spend on the fintech neo bank issued card or in the case of crypto, uh, they get access to the crypto that they could withdraw and maybe potentially purchase their, their shiny NFT that they wanted to purchase, right? Uh, now in all those cases, of course, uh, we are taking on the fraud risk, right? And now uh, the, this question could, does come up often that you know, once uh, RTP and FedNow take off, uh, does our product still have relevance? So, uh, in, so I have, two answers to that question. So one is that uh, first and foremost, uh, the user experience uh, with an ACH pull is actually uh, much nicer than what you would have with uh, RTP or FedNow. Because in the case of an ACH pull or an ACH debit, you're not really leaving uh, your Coinbase or your Robinhood app, right? You've connected your bank uh, uh, via Plaid, Yodli, Felicity, or MX, one of those products, right? Uh, and therefore, you could stay within uh, the UI of your fintech app without leaving it. You are able to pull money and then start using it. Whereas with RTP, et cetera, you don't have such an elegant user experience. You'd have to uh, uh, you know, uh, switch out of your from your Coinbase or Robinhood app, go into your bank, and then push funds into the Coinbase mm -hmm. Robinhood app, right? And none of the product managers out there would like that to happen because then you're losing users, uh, you know, attention. So that's one. So therefore, we think that ACH will still always have uh, a, a place because of this elegant uh, UX that it offers. And uh, regardless, even when you know things like uh, RTP or FedNow take off, there will still be a lot of fraud. Essentially, mm -hmm. uh, the authorized push payment style fraud or the Zell scam style fraud will still be there. And a lot of them are perpetrated uh, over your social engineering methods where I'm mm -hmm. convincing you to do something, where I'm convincing you to install TeamViewer, I'm, I'm taking over control of your screen and I'm, I'm, I'm essentially uh, in the guise of teaching you, I'm essentially now doing something shady like you know blanking out the screen and uh, because you can do that in these apps. Yeah, I can blank out the screen and then I can send money out to wherever I want, right? So uh, so therefore, uh, we already today offer a product which looks at uh, presence of such remote screen sharing apps and detects them and stops such kinds of fraud in, uh, uh, in, in the UK for faster payments in the UK, as well as it stops for, you know, social engineering that's already happening in crypto exchanges, right? So we'll be prepared in that in that sense as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right that, um, you know, ACH isn't going anywhere, right? I mean, it, it, it's my sense that once uh, payment mechanisms reach mass adoption, it's very, very hard to get rid of them, right? I mean, look at the number of paper checks 
you know, particularly in the B2B space, but even, even in, you know, consumer payments, um, you know, the continued prevalence of paper checks, despite having all of these other great payment mechanisms available. So my sense is even as, you know, FedNow or Clearinghouse RTP come online, that ACH is likely to remain sort of a, a workhorse uh, payment channel for the foreseeable future. Um, I'm wondering if you can unpack in a little more detail, you know, how you actually do what you do when it comes to, you know, screening and mitigating that fraud risk. Obviously, you know, don't spill any uh, any secrets that the uh, fraudsters themselves can use, but can you provide a little more um, technical detail on, on the kinds of data you use or the kinds of analysis you do um, and sort of at a high level, at least how it works? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so one of the uh, the the key things uh, that we realized uh, is that you know unlike fighting e-commerce fraud, uh, where you could actually detect e-commerce fraud as in like am I using a stolen card to buy a high value goods by essentially looking for what am I adding to the shopping cart, and also by looking for where am I shipping it? Am I shipping it to drop shipping mm-hmm. slash PO box address, right? But un- unlike the e-commerce scenario, uh, when it comes to loading money into a, into a wallet, into a digital wallet, you don't have shipping address or shopping card as signals. But you, what you do have is uh, your ability to observe a, a consumer's intrinsic behavior. So that is what we rely on very heavily. So we've built uh, what we call device intelligence and behavior biometrics from the ground up. So for example, if I am uh, creating an account and I'm using my own identity, the speed at which I type my social security number or the speed at which I type my name uh, or you know, uh, address, uh, we observe that. Or maybe I'm more likely to essentially autofill all these PII details. Whereas a fraudster who's impersonating me, they'll be distracted while typing it. They're gonna context switch a lot. They're gonna type a few characters at a time. Uh, uh, and 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 also they are gonna be uh, use uh, copy paste much more heavily, right? Mm-hmm. And then not only that, we essentially then observe uh, you know a lot of other behavior like how you uh, move the mouse, how you scroll, how you swipe, etc. When it comes to uh, a, a good user, if this is the first time they're interacting with your web app or your mobile app you know, their scrolling patterns or their mouse movements are gonna be all over the screen. Whereas uh, a fraudster who has, who because of the habit of creating multiple such accounts, the area of coverage of the mouse movement or scroll patterns will be very limited. Mm. So we get down to all these intrinsic behaviors that you can't really change. And uh, yeah, we, we are sitting in the background and observing all of this, which gives us the capability also to you know detect a lot of fraud uh, unbeknownst to the attacker, right? But in addition to fraud, you also uh, have capabilities around AML compliance, if I understand correctly. Uh, most institutions that that I've worked with or worked for treat these as very separate practice areas. I mean, literally like different teams, you know, within the bank or the fintech, different technology stacks, you know, different... Um, you know, different approaches to dealing with these problems. You know, can you expand a little bit on the differences, you know, in the capabilities that you offer and sort of how you think about different kinds of fraud risk versus, you know, anti-money laundering 
risk. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, in fact, what I have seen is that a lot of uh, banks and even a lot of the newer banks and the, the new age crypto apps, et cetera, they essentially end up having two distinct teams uh, for fraud and compliance, right? And when they have uh, two distinct teams, they are all making the purchasing decisions differently and separately and independently. And there's a lot of duplication of, of work that's happening. So uh, uh, now when I, uh, so I used to lead fraud, fraud for Coinbase and then later financial crime for Revolut. Uh, so it was at Revolut that I saw was the first example where essentially both fraud and compliance teams were under my purview as the head of financial crime. And I saw uh, you know, the efficiencies of scale that you can have by having both the, the, the teams and using the same product, right? Uh, so what we've done at Sardine is that, you know, we, we realize that uh, when a new bank is being launched, the needs are actually fairly straightforward. Uh, but if they, if you break it apart and say, hey, fraud team uses this, this product, compliance team use that product, then it just doesn't scale. So what we've done is we've said that, hey, you can essentially use Sardine's unified API at the time of account opening and we'll handle KYC and identity fraud. Then you can use that same API when you're loading money into the wallet and we'll handle payment fraud as in are using a stolen payment method to load money. And then finally, whenever you use, you are moving money around like loading money in, uh, spending on the card or P2P transfers or even sending crypto out, we then do uh, transaction monitoring as well. Mm. And uh, what we realize is that if you come, if you do all of this together, the one example of an efficiency of scale uh, that is pertinent here is that standard AML transaction monitoring only looks at uh, you know transaction amounts and velocities, right? But if you start pairing it together with other details like you know KYC details or uh, location of the individual uh, or you know uh, whether this individual is on a sanctions list or maybe uh, you know an associate. Of, uh, of, of a political person, what, what we call PEP, politically exposed person, then you can actually start having limits about transactions in a very nuanced manner, such that you are not really treating everyone in, with the same lens. You can have very, very uh, different sets of rules for different types of activities there. Right. I mean, one of the you know major critiques about uh, AML, AML policy, is that financial services organizations, you know, end up throwing a ton of resources at these problems in the form of you know technical systems, vendors, engineers, as as well as personnel. Um, but the end result is you know only a tiny fraction of this type of financial crime is actually caught. I mean, from from your you know wide experience, crypto. Revolut and, and you know where you sit now. What kinds of changes do you think would make AML policies, AML regimes, you know, more effective, more efficient? Yeah, no, that's that's a very very. Uh, uh, it it could essentially uh, take another podcast in in and of its own. <laughs> like, there's so many policy changes that you know uh, we need. Uh, the the one thing that I would say at this time is that. Uh, most of the policy changes that we are seeing is because uh, regulators, of course, they you know they are they are probably overburdened with the certain 
uh, uptake in lots of fintechs and crypto companies getting started. And they are still very, very far behind when it comes to even understanding the technology. And as a result, most of the policies that they are is, you know, coming up with, uh, even uh, for addressing the new changes, is essentially trying to, uh, to fit the old policy to address uh, these new style of payments, right? Uh, so for example, yeah, FATF, which is Financial Action Task Force, came up with this uh, travel rule for crypto, which says that you know, whenever someone is uh, you know, moving money from one crypto exchange to another, you have to um, essentially, after a certain dollar value, you have to also pass on the recipient's information uh, together with mm -hmm. the transaction itself, right? Uh, so, uh, but what they don't realize is that oftentimes, you know, uh, uh, all the information about the transactions is already available on the blockchain. Mm -hmm. And if you were to actually use blockchain analytics tools, you would be able to realize if the crypto actually went to another exchange or did it go to you know, a non-custodial wallet. So therefore, if they were using the technology itself uh, you know, more frequently, then they wouldn't really need to take, uh, you know, like uh, in, in come up with a rule, uh, which, which is like uh, from the old days and try to fit it into the new technology, right? It's really interesting. I mean, I, I'll admit I haven't, I have not, thought about that sort of specific aspect before um but you know even relating this apart from crypto thinking about you know the kinds of information that's embedded in an ACH transaction is potentially very different than the kinds of information metadata etc that's in you know a uh FedNow or clearinghouse RTP or even you know in a Venmo or a Cash App type transaction so, I mean, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's kind of like, you know, perhaps it's not the most efficient way to take a rule set that was designed for, you know, wire transfers and SWIFT and ACH and apply it sort of universally to every every mechanism because it may, you know, in fact, not be a particularly, it may, it may not take advantage of all the data that's available. It may not be particularly efficient. Exactly. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. That's exactly right. And uh, the the other thing that you know uh, that that is something we are seriously uh, thinking about is, uh, for example, even ACH was initially designed for B two B transactions mostly, and with the rise of Coinbase's and and Robinhoods of the world, we've started seeing an explosion in its use for loading money into a wallet, uh, essentially consumer use case. But now what has happened is that uh, there are not very good systems set in place to, uh, uh, to resolve liability for an ACH transaction when it is reversed, right? And there's a lot of consumers, uh, they have you know, figured this out and what we call friendly fraud has actually uh, increased. So if the crypto transaction or the stock trade goes south or goes against you, then you might as well just call up your bank and say, hey, hey I didn't authorize it. Right, and there's no uh, institution or body which is which is sitting there saying, "Hey, I'm going to help dispute or counter dispute uh, this uh, this reversal." Right, and uh, I think that has to change. Right, like the technology has uh, is here to stay uh, with ACH and RTP, etc. Uh, yeah, we we need to uh, 
if if there are any regulators who listen to your show, I would love to you know, just make a quick plug over here that we would love to work together with uh, all parties, right? Financial institutions, fintechs, crypto exchanges, etc., and see if we can uh, uh, you know come up with a way of establishing liability and you know doing something innovative over here. And on that note, we are essentially uh, kickstarting an effort for uh, bringing together different parties here and having a forum uh, where we can all uh, discuss this. And right before Money 2020, uh, this October, like the day before it starts, we're gonna uh, do an event together. If if people wanna, you know, come to that, uh, yeah, uh, they can reach me, and I would love to uh, have as many participants as possible. Well, you heard that. If uh, if any regulators are listening, reach out to uh, Sardine to see how you can collaborate on uh, improving AML and fraud in the payment system. Soups, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people find you, learn more about Sardine, and learn more or sign up for this uh, Money 2020 pre-event? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, very easy to find us on Twitter. We are at Sardine just like the fish, S-A-R-D-I-N-E. And you can also email me at soups at sardine.ai. So S-O-U-P-S at sardine.ai. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Jason. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of FinTech Business Podcast. Please take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people to find it. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode or appearing as a guest, drop me a line at jason at fintechbusinessweekly.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time.